right. You know, it seems like on a Sunday morning, there are so many things going on that you just rush through, and you're trying to get through everything, and you try and make sure as a, as a pastor to make sure everything flows right, and um, this is a special Sunday. Um, it's special in many ways. It's special because of Advent. It's special um, because we can just pause right now and just consider the significance of uh, two uh, young people saying, I believe... And I want to publicly declare that. Um, and I'm sure they're nervous, uh, as are uh, anybody that comes on up and, uh, and goes through this. But um, in the book of Acts, we're told in Acts chapter 8 of the story of one of the uh, disciples named uh, Philip encountering an Ethiopian. And as he encounters in this Ethiopian, uh, reads a verse from Scripture and says, you know what this means? And, and can you think of a better lead-in to sharing the gospel? And what we're told in that passage is that Philip opens up the word and tells him, and it literally says, it tells him the good news about Jesus. And as he walks through that, and as they're walking down, you can sense, and I wish you had the whole conversation, because I bet it was an amazing conversation, but they come to the spot of water, and the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized. And what he is essentially saying in declaring that is that what you have told me about the good news of Jesus, I believe, and I want to make that public in my declaration. We don't believe that baptism has any mystical power. We don't believe that when these two are baptized that their sins vanish away. We believe that those sins are nailed to the cross and that they are put away when Jesus declared, it is finished with my sacrifice. And that He has died, and they are going to publicly declare for you that, that He has died on their behalf to take away their sins, that He was buried, completely uh, uh, crucified and dead, but that the grave could not contain Him, and so He rose on the third day from death to life, declaring victory over Satan and the power of sin. And so I know, are you too nervous? Maybe a little bit? It's okay to be nervous. Uh, but you know what? When you guys put your faith in Jesus Christ, these guys all became brothers and sisters. So this is just family. And so this is just a time where we can go before family and say, what the Bible says about Jesus dying for me, I believe. And I want everybody here, it's a lot of people, I want them to know that I believe that's true, and that's what Jesus did for me. So, Levi, I think we're going to start with you, right? So I'm going to ask you two questions, and then we're going to go through this process. And, and so what we want to ask you is, first of all, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose from the dead? And you want to, second, you want to proclaim to all these people that that's what you believe publicly? All right. So I'm going to let your dad baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all right? I'm going to get out of the way so you can take pictures, too, all right? He, he disappears when he... All right, Levi. All right. Yeah, you can clap for that. All right, Junie. I'm going to ask you the same questions. I was told 
I was thrown off when I saw the email that had her name as Ava June, because I always just thought it was Junie, but uh, I heard the whole story then of why, so uh, we're all good. I just want to make sure you weren't counterfeit. You're, you're really the right person. So Junie, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead? And you want to publicly declare before all these people that you believe that? All right, so we're going to let your dad baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. We're going to pray a blessing over these two. Mom's going to do it. You need a mic? Travis. Amen. All right. And as they go down and as the kids go down, if you see these two, they're going to be shy, but uh, make sure you just recognize and, and say congratulations to them as they are publicly declaring before all of you their belief in Jesus as their Savior. So, all right. So Hebrews chapter 2, if you would find it in your copy of God's Word, we're going to read verses 9 through uh, 18, and once you have that, if you would stand with me as we read through Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 9. It says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why it is, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell, you, tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise." And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for just a time to pause and reflect on the coming of Jesus, 
that he lived among us. And Father, as we reflect on that, I pray that our hearts would be stirred with affections for you, that we would give you glory and praise and honor that is due your name. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So Advent, we are continuing through Advent with this book of Hebrews that at first glance might not seem like a good Christmas uh, uh, text, but I, I believe I'm convinced it, it fits very eloquently. And, and I want to put some context on this as we start to dive into Hebrews chapter 2. Um, remember that uh, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers, most likely in Jerusalem, ones that were probably struggling. They were struggling with, is it worth it? Is this all really worth it? You know, they, they probably walked into the temple. I mean, we are told that in Acts that you know, when, when uh, Peter and John were believers, obviously, that after Jesus had gone back to heaven, what do they do? They go walking into the temple. They still kept up with some of these things, not necessarily the, the sacrifices, but the, the worship of God at the temple, God's holy place. And, and so I imagine as they, they walked in with the temple still functioning, and, and for a Jew, the, the heritage and the name and the tradition meant so much. And when they put their hope and their faith in Jesus, all of that would have been ripped away from them and their family would have rejected them and, and they would have been outcasts. And so they were alone and they probably would question, is it really worth it? If Jesus is superior to the old, why was he crucified, beaten and put to death? If he is superior, you can imagine the thoughts and so the writer starts in chapter 2 with this incredible declaration. He says, therefore, we must pay attention, must pay more close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. He's like, I know the temptation is real. I know that it's drawing you. But listen to me. The message was declared by angels, and it was proved to be reliable. It was affirmed by those who heard it, and it was, it was confirmed by God. Through miracles and signs in Jesus. You can hear the appeal of the writer. Brothers, believe this message is worth it. And then he goes and he says, How shall we escape if we ignore or neglect or walk away from such a great salvation? And then he goes on, he says, it was not to angels. And, and there's this kind of confusing passage, but the reality is, is pretty significant and it's important for the context that he says that it was not to angels that, that the world was subjected to. And he goes through and he quotes from the Psalms and he, and he says that there is nothing that has been uh, not put under him. And, and, and the, the, the context here is he's speaking to humanity. He's not speaking about Jesus in this. Because sometimes we look at this and say, well, everything is subject to Jesus. Yes, that's true. Here's the reality. When God created all things, he intended for man to reign over creation. And he says, and this jumps into our text, the reality is that when he looks around, when the Jewish believer, when we as, as humanity look around as believers, we don't see a creation that is subject. But we see a world filled with sin. We see a world that is on fire and out of control and a sinful wreck. 
And he starts out in verse 9, one of my favorite verses. He says, but we see him. Namely, Jesus. I mean, we could just preach a whole sermon on that right there. What we ought to see in this uh, horrid depiction of humanity, what we ought to look for, the one thing that we should have our eyes focused upon, because you'll notice in 10 chapters from now, in chapter 12, the, the writer concludes by saying, hey, I know that there's all kinds of sins in your life. Look to Jesus. But we see him, namely Jesus, who was made a little lower for a little while than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death forever. And here is the reality. Jesus is what we need to see, and he is worth it, and he came and he lived for us, and there is important significance to that very fact that he lived. And that is what the writer is going to lay out for us in Hebrews chapter 12. What does it mean that he lived for us? It starts with the fact or the statement of his incarnation. It's a big fancy word. Uh, uh, it just simply means in the flesh. It's Latin incarnito, which means in the flesh, incarnation. And so whenever you hear that word incarnation, it means that God became for a little while lower than the angels and he entered into humanity. And we're actually told in this verse 9 the reason for it. It says, he was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor, because for this reason, what is it? The suffering of death. So the reason that Jesus was made flesh and blood was to suffer death. And it goes on, it tells us that he might taste death for everyone. And the original language literally means to fully partake, to participate in. So, so here's what we're trying to piece together. And this is a little bit classroomish at first, but I want you to understand what's going on. So Jesus became flesh and blood so that he could suffer death, so that he could fully partake in death. And it tells us why, instead of us, for everyone. Okay, so that is the proposition here, that Jesus came in the flesh to die, to fully participate, to taste death for us. The only way, because remember, the first part of the chapter says that, that everything is out of control, it's out of order, it's not in the way that it's supposed to, and we know that because of sin entering into the world through Adam and Eve, and it's, it's a wreck, and so there is, is a just punishment that is deserved upon all of creation, and, and here's the reality, Jesus came. Because God knew that the only way, because he could have, he could have done from heaven, he probably could have snapped his fingers and made it all right, but he chose not to. He came and he took the time to live, to take responsibility for our sins. It's an incredible thing when we stop to think about it, that Jesus came to suffer death, to experience death, and we're going to get into that even more here in a little bit, but the purpose of it was that he might taste death instead of everyone else. 
And so it goes on in verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And, and, and the, the, the wording there is, says it was fitting, it was necessary. If you remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he came to John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, whoa, 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 you shouldn't be baptized by me, but I should be baptizing you. And Jesus says something incredible. He says, no, 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 permit this because it is necessary. And that's the same concept. It is necessary. Why is it necessary for Jesus to come? And it says it was necessary for hitting him. And then we get an explanation of him, which is an incredible thing to pause and think about. For whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. So, so he is the author and the, the creator of all things. He's got immense power. He's worthy of all glory and honor. And it says that in spite of that, it was fitting it was necessary for Jesus to come and to suffer death. Why? I mean, he could have came up with another way. The reality is the reason why is because of his love. And he wanted to relate. The ultimate illustration of the fact of his real love is that it involves sacrifice. David, King David, when he was uh, uh, making sacrifice to the Lord, when there was a plague and it stopped at the threshold of some guy, I can't pronounce his name, and uh, David comes to him and says, I want to buy this threshing floor to establish an altar, and, and the guy says, no, 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 far be it from me, you take it, king. And David says, how shall I make sacrifice to the Lord if it doesn't cost me anything? That's love. That sacrifice, real love, involves cost. And here's the fact of why God said it was necessary. Because he was perfect. And, and we're told that it perfected him. Now, what does that mean? Did that mean that Jesus had some sort of uh, imperfection in his character? No, it just means that he had never experienced something. I always struggled with that, that it says that, it, that in, in chapter 5, it's going to say that, that the son learned obedience through what he suffered. He has become perfected. And, and what does that mean? It means that it was, now he was taking on something he had never experienced. God had never experienced suffering. God had never experienced death. How could he relate to a humanity that was doomed to death and to, to suffering if he could not connect with it? So he experiences death, and it's not just that he experiences death for his own sake, but he experiences death for us. He walked in our skin, literally, to take away our sting of death. And because he lives, we're told that he is the... the Founder, or in some translations it says captain, uh, the Greek there literally means a leader, and he leads by example, he leads by experience, and not only that, we are told that he leads as the preeminent family member. So verse 11 starts, and it says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We all have the same source. The source is God. He came up with the plan, and he executes the plan, and he provides for the plan. 
And the plan was that he would come and live, and we are sanctified by the one who is sanctified. And so we are all of the same human family. I want us to just kind of pause and think through this and understand what's going on here. Jesus is saying, or the writer of Hebrews is saying, this, this God came and dwelt among you so that you could be his family, so that you could literally relate and connect to him. And, and all of it is the same source, the Father, and out of his great love, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. And so the, one, the, the, the very thing that justifies him in punishing is the very thing that allows him to come and be just in offering the sacrifice for our sins. And so Jesus is sanctified by the Father, and therefore he is able to sanctify us. It's this kind of circular thing that that's going on, but the reality is out of the same divine plan of redemption, it all fits together. And that source is his love. That God loved us so much that he sent his son, and God loved us so much that he willingly died for us. And so it tells us that he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is significant to the reader of this book. Remember, we started out the chapter by talking about how the Jewish believer family and heritage meant so much to them. And to come to Christ and to say, I declare that I believe that what Jesus has done for me was to then uh, uh, separate themselves essentially from their earthly family, to be segregated, to be cast out. And now the writer says, yeah, I know you've had family cast you aside, but Jesus is proud to call you brother. Jesus is proud. And we get three affirmations from Old Testament scriptures here. In, in the congregation, he will tell. His confidence in them. He says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me, the family that I have, is the confirmation. And so, brothers and sisters, it is not a wonder that we might not be ashamed of Jesus. But it is an amazing thing that Jesus is not ashamed of us. That is an incredible thing to ponder. That, that we don't have a God who is sitting in heaven looking at your sins and saying, shame on you, shame on you, you, you filthy mongrels who can't ever do what is right. I love you. I pour out my love for you. I constantly do it. No, no. It says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers, that we are brothers with Jesus, co-heirs with Christ, it tells us. We are saints. We, we, we're afraid to say the term saints. We always have to say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's true. I get it. But brothers and sisters, nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus or any of the disciples ever call someone a sinner saved by grace. You know what they call them? They call them saints because that's our rightful title for those who are in Christ. If Jesus is not ashamed, we should never be ashamed of him. And by the way, that also means we shouldn't be ashamed of other believers who are called in Christ. Because Jesus isn't ashamed of them. I mean, you know, it might be that you go to a party and there's so-and-so, and yeah, I'm gonna, I kind of know them. No, no, Jesus is wholeheartedly embracing and says, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. And this is where the passage really turns on its end into an incredible message of hope and application. So as our brother, 
We're told in verse 14, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He is connecting to us. When I was growing up, I, I rode the school bus, and I had um, uh, kids that I was shrimpy when I was little. I've expanded a little since then. But I had this, this kid that always picked on me. And I, and I rode the bus, and it was you know a good hour long, and I always hated it because I had this kid that picked on me. And I had an older foster brother who did not need to ride the school bus. He had a vehicle. He was a, in high school. Um, but one time I had di- divulged to him what was going on, and so he forego ro- driving to school, and he rode the school bus, and as soon as this kid came to pick on me, he got right up next to him. I'm not condoning this, by the way, and he just literally laid into this guy, and let me tell you, that guy never picked on me for the rest of my life, but I'm thinking of that and how, how you know, that was so great that I had a big brother who was willing to step in on my behalf. Well, brothers and sisters, we have an enemy who has held over our heads death and sin forever since Adam and Eve fell. And Jesus, our big brother, has come and stepped in on our place, has forsook what he is capable of doing, which is sitting on his glorious throne. He stepped into our world and said to our enemy, no more. That's what this passage is telling us. That's why it's significant. When we talk about Advent, why is it so significant that Jesus came? Because he lived in the flesh and he took on the devil and he said, no more. These are my brothers and my sisters and I love them and you will not have victory over them. And we consider what it took for Jesus. He, he had to put on frail human flesh and blood. He had to enter into the prison to set the captives free. And what it achieved, we're told that he took on flesh and blood, that he might partake of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And what this is saying is that he literally has made the power that Satan has with death over us to be inoperable. What he has achieved is that he has made the devil's control over you inoperable. Fear of death is no more for the believer. That's why we're told in 1 Thessalonians that when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonia, he says, I don't want you guys to grieve as the world grieves when someone dies because they have no hope. It doesn't mean we aren't sad. Death still hurts. It's a heartache. We look around the table at the holidays and we don't see people that we love and miss. And I get that. And that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. What he's saying is that we no longer fear death. Where, O death? Death is your sting. It is gone because of Jesus. There is an unhealthy fear of death today in America. I'm going to get myself in trouble for this. But there is this incredible fad of exercise and eating right. You know why? Because people don't want to die. And I get it. But they say the statistics are that you had five years to your life if you do that. Now note, that's at the end of your life. Let's be honest, do you really, in that time of your life, want to add more? When I'm on a ventilator, I don't want to have to live another five years. 
All right, I'm being a little facetious, but there is this incredible fascination with making sure, you know, uh, I heard a preacher say uh, recently, you know, you know, we, we have all these restrictions on our diets and stuff. Just say grace and eat it, all right? If the Lord can redeem us from the pit of hell, I think he can make that cheeseburger good enough to sustain you. I'm sure that's biblical. doesn't mean that there can't be fear of dying. Okay, I want to clarify that. It means we have no fear of death. Dying is still an experience, and it's sometimes a fearful experience. It's an experience of, of unknown. But the act of death, brothers and sisters, we close our eyes and we open them to glory. Over and over again, we're told in Scripture this reality. John, I'm sorry, in, in, in the Psalms it says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. We're told in, in John's epistle, in, in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall see Him like He is, and we shall be with Him. That's the reality. There is no fear in death because Satan has been conquered. The, the fear of death is gone. The experience might be a little fearful, but the reality is we have the victory over death. And it tells us that he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He has come not for the angels' sake, but for our sake to deliver us from the fear of death. Why is it so significant that Jesus came and lived? Because he took on flesh that he might experience, that he might partake, that he might literally be able to conquer this fear of death. And render the devil's power inoperable in your life. And then the writer concludes this chapter with two significant verses. The first one is what it accomplished in regards to a holy God. It tells us in verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Remember, he's writing to a Hebrew audience who knew all of the precepts of the priests and the Levites and the, the process of offering sacrifices. And, and, and if there's a fear in, in their hearts of saying, well, am I forsaking all this? Am I forsaking the law? The writer says, no, no. He had to do this so that he could be the ultimate priest. He did this so that in spite of what we're going to read in, 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 in chapter 10 where it says that the, the sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, they will never take away sin, but they will be a constant reminder, an annual reminder of sin. Here we have Jesus who took on flesh and blood. God came and he, he became a priest on our behalf to make a sacrifice to make propitiation. There's a good fancy word. Fun word. And I want to give you an explanation of it. And there is a difference here, and I, I think it's ex extremely significant, the choice of the word propitiation, and it does not say reconciliation. Propitiation means to satisfy. And here's what it 
means in the context here that the Old Testament, you offered a lamb as a sacrifice for sin. It was not for reconciliation. It was to satisfy the justice of God that was demanded for violation of His law. And so you would have to, in fact, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no justice for God. And so God's justice required death. And there is no escaping that. And so we're told in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, that it pleased the Father to bruise the Son, to afflict Him. Because here's what's going on in this passage. This is why it says that He took on flesh, because humanity had to pay the punishment for sin, for humanity's sin. And what had to happen was death through a sacrifice. And so Jesus took on humanity, he took on flesh, and he took on blood, and he lived among us, and he he alone was the perfect example of fulfillment of God's holy and just law. And then he said, now I, who am just, will offer myself as satisfaction for the justice that the law requires. And only he could do that. And so he stands before God, and, and he pleased the Father. And we're told that by Peter in his epistle that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And he satisfies the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath on the sin bearer. His act in the flesh makes satisfaction. And it makes satisfaction. That's why John can write to us in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that he is the propitiation. He is the satisfaction of the wrath of God, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So he offers himself. Reconciliation comes in when we say, yes, I affirm that. That is my hope and faith. And God says, yes, you are forgiven satisfaction made and he is a priest the only priest in the history of all of creation who has been able to fully satisfy the wrath of God so verse 17 tells us that him living allows satisfaction for the wrath of God and then verse 18 tells us what it accomplishes in regards to us now listen to this for because he himself has suffered when tempted He is able to help those who are being tempted. He now relates to us. Brothers and sisters, he lived. Why is that so significant? Why is that so meaningful? Why should it be so meaningful? Why was it so glorious that the angels at the announcement of Jesus' birth say, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. The Savior today has been born for you. Why is that so significant? Why couldn't Jesus have just from heaven declared the righteousness of God and the satisfaction of of justice from heaven? Why did he come and live and dwell among us? Well, one, because he in the flesh was able to propitiate, to satisfy that wrath, but also he now can relate to you, his creation, in a very real and whole way. He has experienced the scars of battle. He has the marks on his body to prove his suffering and love for you. 
He personally knows your struggles. Jesus knows my struggles more than I do. And praise God that he lived and experienced this because now it says that we can cry out to him. He helps us in our time of need. It says that he is able to help. The, the, the Greek there means that he is able to hear and give aid when we cry out to him. And when tempted, when we face temptation, you know what the... This is going to sound funny. The temptation to do when we face temptation, to hide from it. To run away and hide from it. That's the temptation. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. When you are tempted, you cry out to him, he hears you, he runs, and he gives you the power over that temptation. So when you are struggling with fear and doubt, and you face uh, the agony of that and the uncertainty, you cry out to him, and he will come, and he will give you the aid you need to have victory over because he has faced temptation and conquered it, and he knows exactly what you need. He runs to the cry of the sufferer and aids them. Why did he come? Why was he beaten? Why was he crucified? So that he can assist us. He assists us by propitiation. He knew that there was nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to fully satisfy the justice of God. By the offer of reconciliation that he offers himself for all. And, and, and we had two young people declaring today that this is what they believe. That God through his son satisfies. That's why the greatest paragraph in the Bible, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. This incredible passage that you should have buried deep in the reservoir of your heart. It tells us that, that he has come and he has made satisfaction so that, the, the, that he could be both the just and the justifier. And he offers it by faith freely and he offers reconciliation. Why did he come? Because he assists us by helping us in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we have such a great high priest. The, the writer here is just building off of better, 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 better over and over again. And so he comes to chapter 4 and he says, hey, that high priest, we have Jesus I know you're looking at the high priest and you're thinking back through what it meant to be a good Jew and how you went to the high priest once a year and now you're saying that I don't have to do that. Well, guess what? You have a better high priest. And listen to this better high priest since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near. And the, the, the original language literally means let us assault. Let us go with confidence near the throne of grace. Why? That we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He came and lived so that when we have need, we can go to Him. 
We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, there is no temptation that sees you except what is common to man. And when you are tempted beyond what you can bear, he is able to come and deliver you. So what's the application of all this? Advent means he came. We looked at that last week. He came. What an incredible thing that God Almighty said, I will come for them. When we, when we prepare our hearts for, for this Advent season, as we begin to think through Advent meaning coming, Adventus, it's Latin, it means coming, and we, we anticipate it, and we, we think now for ourselves about the second coming, He came, that's a promise. He has come, He will come. But not only that, He lived for you. And the significance cannot be understated of that. Two kids baptized today. What they did up here had no bearing on their eternal salvation. What it did for them was put them out front and center of you and said, I believe the gospel. And I'm willing to go through a ritual that I'm a little bit fearful in doing because I'm a little kid who's standing before grown men and women, but I don't care because the gospel is true. It's because they understand that Jesus came and lived. And if there is anyone here today that does not grasp the significance of that, that he lived for you, then let today be a day of understanding and reckoning that He was made flesh and blood so that He could satisfy the Holy One's righteous requirements of the law on your behalf. And now He offers reconciliation with the Father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are told that therefore there is, that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, and we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, that we believe that Jesus died for all and now offers reconciliation because of His satisfaction of the wrath of God. And so my prayer for you is if you are here, maybe visiting, maybe you've been here for many years, maybe you've heard preaching before and, and you say, yeah, I believe the Bible, but I have no relationship with Jesus. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus died for your sins. He was made flesh and blood so that he could really experience the suffering and death so that he can say, I've been there, I've done it, so you don't have to. And he tells us in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, today is the day of salvation. These kids stood before you as a testimony. And there are so many that ask the question, well, what about those who say they've never heard? Well, brothers and sisters... If you're here today, you heard the testimony, and there will be no excuse when you face God on judgment. But you can be eternally forgiven because he lived and made satisfaction. Well, what about for those who believe? Advent means he lived for you. It means he can relate. He, he literally experienced life. 
So give thanks. You know, as we get ready for Christmas, that day where we gather as families and, and we all have traditions and we all have things that we do, maybe we exchange gifts, maybe we don't. We, maybe we have a tree in our room, maybe we don't. It doesn't matter. Give thanks that he lived we ought to be spending time to, to give thanks that He came, that He was even willing to come and give thanks that He lived on your behalf. He came to accomplish this great work, the work of redemption. He desired to do it. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that He looked forward, and that's the way He was able to endure the cross and, and scorn its shame. He said that for the joy that was set before Him, you know what the joy that was set before Him was? His brothers and sisters coming to Him in hope and faith. And we ought to give thanks. We ought to also consider that he didn't just die for us. He died as us. And second, we ought to cry out to him when tempted. Jesus knows my failings and my struggles more than I do. He understands our nature. He took on human nature and not, not the nature of angels. 1 John 1 tells us that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John says, this Jesus, he was very real. It wasn't just a phantom. This isn't Gnosticism where we believe that Jesus was kind of here, but when he was on the cross, he didn't experience anything because he was just a ghost. No, he was real. In the days of his flesh, we're told in Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He understands our nature because he has experienced it. Cry out to him when tempted because he understands our need as well. He was tempted in every way just as we are. What to be rejoicing at this. We have a Savior who, who said, you know what? I'm coming for you. And he took on human flesh. And he suffered. And he experienced life. And he experienced death. So that we ought to be freed from the power of sin and death. My prayer for us as we examine this and as we think through of what we are, you know, as we think about the Advent season and as we think about His coming and we get that anticipation, that buildup, I'm not one for suspense and waiting. You can ask my wife. I get Christmas presents for my kids and I want to open them myself and, and you know, I, I don't want to wait. I don't, I don't like waiting. I don't like anticipation. I want to experience it now. It's the problem of Amazon Prime. I want it now. Give it to me now. If you give it to me in three days, I'm calling you up with a complaint. I need it now. But brothers and sisters, he, he, he has come. And we celebrate that and we, we look into that and we rejoice in that he lived and he experienced it. It wasn't just something he said, but he actually did. And we can rejoice in that. And what is the greatest rejoicing of that is that when we face struggles, we have a brother in arms who says, I know exactly what that's like. Let me help you. So let us go to him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you came and that you took on flesh and blood, that you condescended, that you subjected yourself and made yourself a little lower than the angels so that you could taste death and take it in. that you could satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. Father, may we give you eternal thanks for what you have done for us and what you have experienced. And Father, we thank you that you can relate to us in such a way that we can come to you and cry out and know that you will provide us help in our time of need. We thank you, we praise you, In Jesus' name, amen.